Hey, what's up? This is Jason with Centerpoint Church in Hendersonville, Tennessee. I'm excited that you joined us today. We're going to be jumping into the message in just a minute. But before we do, I just want to remind you that we want to hear your story. So if this impacts you in any way, please send us a message. Go to centerpointtn.com and click on contact us. Let's jump into the message. We're going to be jumping into the message today. It's part two of a two-week collection. Before we do, let me pray. Lord, anoint my lips, commandeer my mouth, God, and give us all ears to hear what you have to say today, Lord. I love you and praise you. I don't do anything for you and all God's people say amen. As promised, this is part two of Nero and the Living Stones, and we're going to be hovering over First Peter today. And to give you a little bit of context, last week we talked a lot about Nero, who was the Roman emperor during the time that First Peter and Second Peter were written, and the church was under extreme extreme persecution, but it was about to be worse. And so Peter writes this letter to the people who are scattered to encourage them, to let them know that though I know that tough times are happening right now, it's worth it. See, Jesus never promised us that things would be better. He did it. But he promised us that it would be worth it. And that's what I want us to talk about today. So the big picture today is we're going to be talking about Peter that calls us living stones and that we are a part of building or adding to what's already been built for generations of this spiritual house. So I was thinking this week as I was kind of putting the final touches on this sermon, like what's the weirdest house that I can think of besides the White House? (laughs) Is it too soon for that? Okay. And the weirdest house, and it's not even close, is close to my hometown. It's in San Jose, California. There was a lady by the name of Sarah Winchester, and she was the heir to the entire money left from Winchester Rifles. And she married the actual son. He died mysteriously. Their infant child then died mysteriously, all within a short period of time. And so she inherited $20 million, and this was in the late 1800s. Now, $20 million is a lot right now. Imagine what it was in the 1800s. And so she has all this money, and she gets told by this medium that she is cursed, And that she'll actually be haunted by the ghosts of every person that's ever been shot and killed by those rifles. And so she does what any normal person would do who just got told by a medium that the ghosts were going to haunt them and had $20 million. And she becomes obsessed with building this house just in San Jose, California, and just building the biggest mansion that you've ever seen. I actually wrote down all of the details. If I was a decent preacher, I would memorize these. Listen to this about the house she built. Had 160 rooms, 40 bedrooms, 40 staircases, 13 bathrooms, six kitchens, 10,000 window panes. 2,000 doors, 52 skylights, 47 fireplaces, three elevators, two basements, and just one shower. That's a deal breaker for me on that last one. I'm, I'm at least a two shower a day kind of a guy. I know that's hard to believe. I can feel your judgment, especially coming from right over here on this side. But But she was told by the medium that the ghosts were going to haunt her. So she decided she was going to build a house that was unlike any house that was ever built. So that the ghosts would wander the hallways, get lost, get frustrated, and then leave because it was unlike any other house. 
So she was obsessed with the number 13. And so you'll see 13 all throughout the property, 13 different window panes. There was uh, railings. There was always 13 spokes on them. You see 13 all throughout the house. And she made it as unusual as she could think. So there was, you, you heard how many stairwells there were. There was these stairwells that would go to nowhere. Some go to doors. Some of the doors are actually walls. Some are these small little doors that open up to these giant ballrooms. Some are giant doors that open up to little closets. Nothing straight. It all takes weird curves. One of the doors actually is at the second story, and it opens up to the outside, and you'll just drop two stories down. And so she creates this house that was very strange, and even now you can go take tours of it. And what happened, though, is she hired construction crews so that it would be worked on 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, all around the clock. They were constantly working on this house, these construction crews. And she paid them so well because she said, don't tell anybody what you're doing. This crew, don't talk to that crew. You don't tell anybody in town what's going on. You just work nonstop. So there was work going constantly. One, so she wouldn't have to be alone because we all know ghosts only come out when you're by yourself. And number two, because she had to constantly expand on this house. And while she was building it, they said she would be free from haunting. Now, interesting enough, and you can watch documentaries on this, that the crews talked about different people or ghosts they would see consistently on the property. Now, is that true? I have no idea, but I also believe in Bigfoot. So I'm probably not the best you know, the, the person to, to try to get truth from here, or am I? But the main point is this. This house was being worked on 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. It never stopped until she died. And when she died, no nail ever went in a board again. It stopped immediately. And here's why I want you to tell, to tell you this story. is because what we're going to be studying today is this spiritual house that Peter's talking about. And it's this house that is the kingdom of God that the original, you know, the apostles and then your great-great-grandparents and your great-grandfather. And, and he's painting this picture that we're all building something that's bigger than just us. And that we're a part of church history. And more importantly, we're a part of church future. And it will not stop ever. Every day, every minute, somebody is getting saved and they're adding stones, these living stones, to the spiritual house. So we're going to be in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 7. Now remember, from last week, the church is under extreme persecution. And this is what he says. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot to unpack there in just three verses. First, let's remind ourselves what our points were last week. This is part two. So last week we had three points. Point number one is we had a living hope. They needed to hear that because they were feeling pretty hopeless. They needed to know that your hope wasn't in man and it's not even in you. What it is is it's in God and he's a living hope. Number two was suffering is to be expected. Jesus never promised us that things would be easier. As I told you, he promised it would be better. That it would be worth it. Number three, he said, you are not alone. And that was important because they felt completely alone in what they're going through. The devil wants to remind you or make you think or trick you or deceive you that you're the only one. 
so you don't talk about it, so that you stay in the dark. You're the only one whose marriage is going through a difficult season. You're the only one that has anxiety and depression that take over sometimes. You're the only one that has these addictions. You're the only one that's struggling with an eating disorder. Don't talk about it, because you're the only one. And we talked about that it was like the animal planet when you see whom the devil is, the roaring lion, and you see the lion, and who do they attack? They attack the one animal that is alone, away from the pack, wounded. So Peter wanted to remind them, you are not alone. In fact, Paul doubles down on this. He says that the areas in our life that we don't talk about, that we keep, are in the dark, and he refers to you over and over again to us as children of light, of children of light. So another part that sticks out to me in this verse that we just, these verses that we just looked at is he says, offer spiritual sacrifices. And that part's interesting to me. What is a spiritual sacrifice? Like, is that when we find Casper and we shoot him in the head with a Winchester rifle and say, you know, here, that's a, that's a funny joke. What is a spiritual sacrifice? And Paul actually gave us the idea of what a spiritual sacrifice is. Uh, here's a spoiler alert. It's you. Paul says this in Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Underline that word worship because that's interesting. So what does you as a spiritual sacrifice look like? Clearly, there's a double entendre there because he's talking about the sacrifices of the Old Testament when you would take an innocent animal and you'd bleed it out on an altar to cover your sins, and that would be the sacrifice. Now, don't worry. We're not going to be having you do anything weird like that. But he's referring to the old sacrifice, and he's saying, now you are the spiritual sacrifice. It is you. What does that look like? What does it look like that you and I as a sacrifice? And here it is. It's this. God, I'm, your, I'm yours. It's all yours. Good, bad, or ugly. Sometimes I don't feel like I'm valuable, but you say I am. So it's here. You have my time. You have my money. You have my future, my plans. Whatever it is, it's all yours. That's what it looks like. And it's not a one-time elixir. You have to do this daily. Pick up your cross daily. And, and, and here's the thing. I think it looks a lot like the boy that showed up with the lunch pail when Jesus fed everybody with the loaves and fishes. Now, there's a boy that shows up. He's carrying one of those metal lunch pails, right? Clearly, it's probably like 80s. Like, I'm guessing it's Alf or Hulkamania or, you know, Ghostbusters. Some of you uh, probably had Dukes of Hazard. Uh, those of you in the South. Not super popular in California, but that's okay. I got Alf. And he's walking up with this, with this lunch pail, and what does he say? He says, there's, there's, there's plenty of people here, and this isn't enough, but it's all I have, and it's yours. And Jesus is like, oh, watch what I can do. Watch what I can do with all you have. A cheesy preacher joke, I'm above it, I'm not going to say this, but a cheesy preacher joke would be, you supply the natural and he'll add the super to it, and then it's supernatural. I'm not going to say that because it's cheesy and I'm above that, but it's pretty funny. Point number four, and you're like, dang, how do you get to four already? Remember, I told you we already went over the three last week. So if it's your first week, you're late to class. Number four is the work never stops. The work never stops. Just like the Winchester Mansion, it never stopped. 
until it abruptly stopped. And that's what it looks like here with you and I is it never stops until Jesus comes back and then it's going to stop quick. But by then it's too late. The house has already been built. So here's the question. Are you building monuments to yourself? Or are you working as part of this living house, this kingdom? And we're all living stones building on top of each other. I, I want you to see this. I brought some toys. All right. And, 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 and I want to give you a picture in your mind of what Peter is trying to say with his words, with this idea that we are living stones building and being a part of a spiritual house. And I love this picture because he's saying that you and I get to build on what all of the other forefathers did before us. And you and I get to build on what future generations are going to build on top of. And so I love this idea. My great-grandfather, Jesse, knew the Lord and raised the family to know the Lord and to follow the Lord. And then, and then my grandfather was a preacher. And I love know that, that I get to build on top of what he did and then what my great-grandfather did. But, but, but it's not just that. It's also the people that were in the church before I even got there. Like, I got saved at a church in Sacramento, and somebody gave towards that building project before I was born. Somebody did, because I was a teenager. I don't tithe. That's a teenager. I'm just a parasite. If you're a teenager in here, you're a parasite. You ain't got a job. I can't wait. That's funny. I can't wait to the people that gave to that building project to expand the church that I got saved in. They get to find out the dividends of what God did with their money. When they said, well, I don't have much, but you can have it. And they gave towards it. And then that one little punk teenager, and back then I wore baggy pants. Randall, that one little punk teenager gave his life to the Lord in eighth grade. And now here he is decades later, now raising his family to follow the Lord. I love that. So, so, so here's the thing is as you are doing things for the kingdom of heaven with your time, with your money, with your resources, you get to be a part of what God is doing. Now, let's talk for a minute about those of you who, you're the first person in your family to ever get saved, to give your life to the Lord. You're the first one, at least that you know of. Can I just tell you, congratulations, you just broke a generational curse. Because in the Legos, there's this one piece It's the foundational piece. It's the flat piece. It's the piece that all the other Legos build on. Now we're going to get to what that is for the church, but for your family, you have the opportunity to be this piece and have your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren build upon it. And they can look back and say, for generations, we have followed the Lord and we've given it all to him. It may not be much. It may be ugly. There may be spots that you wish you can hide, but guess what? Can I give you a newsflash? God already knows. Yeah. 
It's kind of funny because you and I, if we're honest with each other, we think there's parts of our life that we can hide from God. That must be very humorous to God. My kids, I know when they've done something bad. You know how I know? They try to hide it. It's the most obvious thing in the world. My youngest daughter, Callie, she's like her mom. She needs saved. My goodness. It's a joke, mostly. She like, she went into the pantry and she ate candy when she wasn't supposed to. And I knew that she did something that drew my attention because she froze. And she just did this. I said, Callie, did you eat candy? No. Why are you hiding in the pantry and your cheeks look like a chipmunk storing it for winter? That's what we're like to God when we try to hide or we take parts that, that, that we don't think he wants to see because they're ugly because we're embarrassed of them and we're like, nope, I'll give you all this, God, but there's nothing over here. There's nothing. No, no, my cheeks are empty. I'm not, I'm not eating candy. And God's like, no, 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 I know that. What's interesting is this sneaky little thing called foreknowledge. And foreknowledge means that God knows the, the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. Yet in scripture, it says that he's laid these things ahead of time for you to do, which means he already knew how much you were going to mess up. Yet he still gives you a purpose. He already knew the junk that you were going to go through, but he says, no, no, no. I still call you by name. Remember this foundational piece right here that we talked about? This could be for your family. But I'm going to tell you how to make sure this is the right piece so that you're not building monuments to yourself that will not survive the fire. And it's this. Is Jesus has to be the cornerstone. I'm going to explain what that means in just a minute. Now, I've had the luxury of going to the Holy Land as well as Greece. And there's not a whole lot of trees there. And so when you hear things like living stones and the cornerstone, this would have made perfect sense to the audience that they were writing to. The only real trees they have there are olive trees, and they're skinny little trees that you don't necessarily even want to build a treehouse on, let alone an entire apartment complex. And so the cornerstone is important. I want you to hear this. It's 1 Peter 2, 6 through 7. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. See, he's talking about Jesus, the religious people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They, they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And what he's saying right here is, no, no, the one that you rejected is the chief cornerstone. This is God who God's going to use. This is his son. This is God in the flesh. And this is what you have to build it on. So in, in, as they're building these ancient structures, they would go looking for the cornerstone first because it was the most important piece. And they had, you know, it was kind of the equivalent of like the footers and the rebar and everything's important down here in the bottom. So they would find the cornerstone and the cornerstone set the direction that the construction would happen. It set the angles of which they could build on so that it wouldn't come crumbling. And the cornerstone was so valuable because it would set the direction for everything. It would start it all. They would spend so much time during the first process finding the right cornerstone for what they needed for that building project. And here's what we got to know. 
If Jesus isn't the cornerstone to what you're building, you are building a monument to yourself. And what a shame it would be if your children, instead of adding living stones to God's spiritual house, they were adding stones to your house, to you. What a shame that would be to raise them in an environment where they think they're doing something great only to find out at the end that they have been deceived. Here's the, the lesson. All throughout human history, if you look at all of the different empires, they crumbled when they made one fatal mistake. It's called humanism. And it's the belief that man knows better than God. And that what man wants is more important than what God said. And that what man thinks is right, even if it goes in conflict with what the Bible says is right, man wins because man knows more. Every time a civilization encountered that and went into that thinking, it fell. No matter if they said, ah, it's too big, it'll never fall. Ah, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, that'll never fall. Ah, the city of Jericho, that will never fall. The Medo-Persian Empire, that will last forever. The Greek Empire, there's no way that can never. Alexander the Great is the greatest. He'll never die. The Roman Empire will last forever. And probably to the believers at the time who had to sit and watch their family members get crucified on a cross, that had to sit and watch their children get torn, torn apart by wild dogs, that had to sit there and see their grandparents be dipped in wax and used as human candles in Nero's garden parties, it probably did seem like the Roman Empire would last forever, which is why Peter was trying to give them a macro view instead of a micro view. See, the micro view, you and I, it's like, man, we focus on our problems. Man, I got this diagnosis. Man, I got fired today. Man, money's a little tight this month. And I'm not minimizing your issues. I'm maximizing my Savior. I'm going to say that again so you can retweet it because it's good. I'm not minimizing your issues. I'm maximizing my Savior. See, what Peter's trying to tell these people, it's about time you wake up. Let's go. <laughs> Yes. What Peter's trying to tell them is, I know you're going through some difficult times right now. I know it hurts. I know you feel alone, but I want you to look at the bigger picture here. I didn't tell this story in, in, in the first service, so you get this for free. But when I was in high school, my cousin uh, passed away in a car accident. And he was just in high school. And it was really hard to look and see what good would come out of that. Why would a God who loves the world and who is love allow a teenager minding his own business to be struck by a car while he's in his driveway at his house just standing there? But at his, at his funeral, the place was packed. And at that funeral, two high schoolers gave their life to the Lord. Now I ask you this. Is it easy to get pulled into the micro view of a tragedy and miss the macro view of what God is doing for it? If you received a diagnosis, amen. If you received a diagnosis and through your health struggles, people saw how you acted and your words spoke faith rather than fear and they got to know the Lord more through what you were going through, is it worth it? Macro. Point number five, our last point is Jesus must be the cornerstone. If man sets the direction, we see what problems happen. It's the same strategy that Satan used in the Garden of Eden when he said, did God really say that you can't eat from that? 
Did God really say, and what you see going on in society over and over and over again, as you've got social media, you've got Hollywood or Hollyweird, that's a preacher joke. You've got, you've got all kinds of people, these voices saying, no, 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 this is what is right. This is what my rights are. This is what my truth is. This is how I feel. This is what I relate to. This is what I identify as. And I think it's the echoing the same thing of Satan in the Garden of Eden when he says, did God really say? Then the answer is that absolute truths are absolutely true. And when you elevate man over God, it never works. That's not the cornerstone. I love what Peter is doing here in two through six when he says this. He he calls them, he calls you the, the cornerstone. No, I'm sorry, two nine. First Peter two nine. That's what he says. Now keep in mind what these words needed to mean to people at this time. First Peter two nine. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, it's real easy to read those words and to say, oh, you know, that's nice. Peter said that we're a royal priesthood. I knew I had expensive taste. Oh, that's sweet. He said that we're a holy nation. But remember the audience that he's writing this to. They are clinging to hope. It's so much more than just a sweet verse. It's so much more than a canvas at Hobby Lobby. He's reminding them who they are. He's saying, you are not what you're going through. You are not what your past is. You are not what your present is. You are who God says you are. And God says you're a royal priesthood. If you'll notice, through a lot of the letters and the epistles in the New Testament, it's it's Paul, John, and Peter reminding the church who they are. Because the world's always going to tell you who you're not. It's almost as if they knew what social media was. Because I feel pretty good about my life until I go on Instagram. Now, I'm not anti-Instagram, and we're streaming this on social media right now. But, but when I go on there, I always see what everyone else has and realize what I'm not and what I don't have. I could be better looking, skinnier, nicer hair. No, this hair's good. I can't have nicer. More money, bigger church, more prestigious position, all of that stuff. And God is like, no, 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 no. You're missing it. You're missing it. Imagine as you're clinging to hope and he's, and he's saying to you, you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And then the last part says this, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It's easy to praise God when things are good. But can you praise him when you get that diagnosis? But it says declare his praises. I even love it says where the rocks will cry out. So let me pivot for just a moment. And we're almost done. You can tell because the mood music is playing. (laughs) As soon as the band comes up, I can see people go, oh, cool. Yeah, it's almost time to eat. There will be. We'll get you out of here. You can beat the Methodist to to the lunch. Don't worry about it. But let me just pivot for a moment and speak to the older generation 
of the church. Now, I'm not going to define an age. I'm not that stupid. If you associate with being considered the older generation, actually, our church has gotten so young in the last couple of months that I'm actually in the older generation now. I don't know how that happened. But but if, let me just talk for a moment. And that's not, this isn't necessarily a center point message. This is the church. How do you know if we are doing the right thing and building the right way? How do you know? And here it is. Do the 30-year-olds of this church view it as their church or your church? Do the 20-year-olds view the church you go to as their church or your church? Do the 10-year-olds view this as their church or your church? This is it. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. This is important because there's no such thing as spiritual grandchildren. Only sons and daughters. So if the only thing that your children know is a relationship of God through you, then that's not salvation. It's only sons and daughters. I love that in between these two services, we had an eight-year-old come around and he his job every week, and he takes it very serious, is to reset all of the cards in the back of all the seats. I love that my 10-year-old daughter serves one service in Tiny Town in the nursery with my wife, and then she goes sits in a service because this is her church. Because she's building stones right now into what God is doing. So somebody needs to hear this today, and I want it to be you. You're worth it. Jesus doesn't have buyer's remorse dying for you. You were made on purpose, and if you are breathing, your purpose is still here. And we're going to be keep building because it never stops. The last thing is this. I want you to leave today impacted. Because I'm not here to entertain you. If I am, you need to get your money back. My job is to make all of us be what James calls doers of the word and not just hearers. And I want you to know, because it's real easy to leave on Sunday morning feeling excited and feeling like you can conquer the world. And then you lay in bed Sunday night and the devil starts whispering in your ear yet again. You wake up and go to work tomorrow. You get distracted. You get discouraged. Or maybe you're in between jobs trying to find, find work and you get distracted. You don't like your situation. You go back home and you and your spouse are in this season where you're fighting a lot and you get defeated before you even start. And I want to remind you, see, the Old Testament is full of ways to remind people of God's faithfulness. The American culture, not so great. So we live prayer to prayer, miracle to miracle, desperate situation to desperate situation. It's called stones of remembrance. Look it up in the Old Testament. And it was a way that they could remember how God had been faithful all those years before so that when you go through the difficult times, you know he'll be faithful in the future because the ancient of days is not going to give up on you. If his eye is on the sparrow, how much more is his eye on his children? So we're going to end today by you taking your own Legos. I have a flair for the dramatic. That sounded so cool.
And what you're going to do is, as Jeremy is leading us in this song, if you feel comfortable, I want you to come take one of these. And I want you to set this on your desk, in your car, at home, on your, your bathroom sink, wherever, to remind you tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday to look at your life macro. Because God's not asking you to change the world. He's letting us be a part of him change the world. And you are needed. You are important. You are a son or daughter of the Most High King. And if you are not, hunt me down after service. I would love to pray with you and talk through it. But I have something different. I didn't do this for 9 a.m., but I feel feel the Spirit pushing me in a certain way. I'm going to lay this piece down. There's somebody in here that you're the first person that you know in your entire family that's given your life to the Lord. And I want you to take this piece. Now, if there's more than one, I can get more. But there's one person in particular, I think it's a male in here that is feeling that nudge that you think you're the only one and it's not easy. And I want you to remember that you are being used by God to build foundations. And if you look in Hebrews, at the Hebrews Hall of Fame, they said that they died not yet seeing the promises of God fulfilled. So I would love for you to be in heaven and for generations of your family line, you see follow you through the gates of heaven. Somebody needs to remember, God never told us it would be easy. But he said it would be worth it. So as we sing this song, I want you to come up and take a Lego. And then Jeremy will dismiss us. But I want you to hear the words of God. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation set apart. God's special possession. Can I get an amen? Can we celebrate church? Would you stand with me?